0: Welcome to the last episode in our series of episodes featuring the top listen to interviews of 2020. We've listened to the top interviews with clinicians. We've listened to the top interviews with healthcare real estate investors. And this week, our episode features those sharing good information or advice on the healthcare industry, real estate, or entrepreneurism. Episode two, we hear from commercial real estate veteran Pete Bolton of the Pete Bolton Company. He shares strategies on how to approach the great lockdown from an entrepreneurial perspective. David Berg, chairman and co-founder of Redirect Health, shares with us in episode five how he created his company to allow small and medium-sized businesses to provide affordable health care to its employees. Episode 3 is the second part of the interview with Pete Bolton where he discusses how his question listening and expansion training can help physicians listen better to key words to help ask more specific questions when diagnosing patients and how this is so important as telemedicine becomes more prolific in healthcare. The next few clips are from episode 33 and 34, where I interview Vinnie Singh, assistant professor in resource economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she shares economic statistics of our current healthcare system and some thoughts on how we might be able to improve efficiencies and costs. I look forward to returning with you to our regular format in next week's episode. This is the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast, the podcast that brings together leaders in healthcare and investment real estate to consider the possibilities in future at the intersection of practicing medicine and healthcare real estate investment returns.
1: Rethink, regroup, and recoup.
2: There has never been a shutdown of business, and virtually every business, even during the Great Recession, that's never happened.
0: In this two-part episode, we hear from commercial real estate industry veteran Pete Bolton. In the first part, we expand on his editorial in Episode 1 with his strategy on how to approach the current economic downturn he calls the Great Lockdown. We further dive into his experience with other downturns and his outlook of a post-COVID-19 economy. The second part of the episode, we discuss the Pete Bolton Company and his executive coaching services and QLE training, where he teaches executives and professionals the benefits of listening and asking clarifying questions. I ask him to discuss how QLE can benefit providers when asking questions to help better diagnose their patients. In today's episode, I welcome Pete Bolton, president of the Pete Bolton Company, offering executive coaching using tools to improve communication skills, allowing professionals to change their behaviors and build strategic plans to get on their next career level. I'm very excited to have Pete as my guest. Thank you, Pete, for your time.
2: My pleasure.
0: Pete, I want to first discuss the editorial from the first podcast episode, discussing your perspective on the current economic downturn as your eighth, as you said, and then I want to dive into the tools you use with coaching executives to improve professional performance, specifically QLE, and then how the audience can, in the healthcare real estate industry may use this to implement some post-COVID-19 strategies first, but then you know, get to their next career level as the ultimate goal, uh, no matter what situation they're in. So I want to start with sharing with the listeners where you were in your career during some of the other downturns.
2: Oh, my Well, there's been so many, Tricia, that uh, you you forced me uh, by asking me to do this, to go back and look at how many I've been through. And I think I sent you a message on this. I have been through eight of these. Now, nothing like the most recent one, but all the way from gas lines waiting in line during the embargoes from Iran and Russia, et cetera, to um, uh, the RTC days, which commercial real estate literally disappeared. And you can go on and on and on. And then, of course, the Great Recession and now the Great Lockdown, as they call it, which I think is an absolute uh, appropriate term. So how is this like the rest of them? This is completely unique. Um, There has never been a shutdown of business, and virtually every business, that's never happened. Even during the Great Recession um, or the RTC days, it affected commercial real estate tremendously, but obviously other businesses were still uh, productive, so to speak. So this one has been very unique, and I think you will see from... Uh, the very interesting um, laws that have been broken by governments here, that this will prove to change America substantially, unlike the other ones. And I could go on and on on that one, but I'll take your lead.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: you know, you mentioned that the um... You know, the other ones that you you said here and also in your editorial that, you know, there was some causation, there was some, you know, tangible causation of the other downturns. And this one, there's this intangible fear. Do you think we're past the panic stage and starting to reach a stage of courage, even though I'm not sure there's any more certainty than any other point other than this will pass?
2: I don't I don't believe with it any of the other ones we the only fear we had was losing jobs. Everyone could back up and go to work at, you know, Costco or go to work at McDonald's or do do something. But when you are in a mandatory lockdown by governments, that changes the scope of everything. And then what happened is after about two weeks of this lockdown, that fear started to set in. And that was absolutely the coup de gras for Americans and business. I've never seen this country act like this. And frankly, so much of it is unnecessary. And frankly, it's depressing to see how people have been divided on this issue. So yes, this caused an unprecedented amount of fear that has never been witnessed in my decades in business.
0: Well, when do you think people will be able to develop courage from this fear? When, when do you think we'll turn the tide and go from, you know, starting to create courage to squash out the fear or another emotion? But I think I'm thinking courage is the only thing that can. But what thoughts do you have?
2: Yeah, well, there's a great saying out there that says you never go to war with the information you need, you go to war with the information you have, right? And so consequently, we went to war with all kinds of different information, different information from the doctors. And one of the things I lamented after two weeks of this, is I said, this country is no longer being run um, by government and by the people. And the media did such a wonderful job of in, inducing fear into so many people that if there's a finger to point anywhere, it's at that group of individuals. Um, it started out from an informational standpoint, and then it went to how sensational can we make this?
1: Episode five Using Healthcare Real Estate to Provide Affordable Healthcare. Part one of two.
4: I want all of our clients to be able to confidently provide free health care to their employees and their families in such a way that it costs very little or nothing to the employer.
0: Today's episode is the first of a two-part interview with David Berg, chairman and co-founder of Redirect Health. David shares with us how his company allows small to medium-sized businesses provide affordable healthcare to its employees. David elaborates on how he used real estate as a financial tool and technology investments to continue enhancing Redirect Health's operations. Next week in part two of this interview, David describes how Redirect Health was already positioned to effectively absorb and manage patients with COVID-19 and where it is heading in the future. Today, I'm grateful to interview David Berg, chairman and co-founder of Redirect Health. Please listen as we hear the Redirect Health story from David and how its real estate strategy helped it achieve its operational goal of providing affordable health care. Thank you, David. And I will just let you uh, tell the story how Redirect Health came to be and what inspired you to create it.
4: Uh, Hi, Tricia. So um, what inspired me to create it? Um, I guess it comes down to I had a business to run and I could not find affordable health care that I could afford to buy such that my employees can afford to use it. And so there was nothing useful on the market for me. And after years of asking for it, nobody would create it for me or it didn't exist. So I just built it on my own and I built it slowly such that it met all our needs, whatever they were. And many of our employees made 13, 14 dollars an hour at that time. And of course, there were some others that made more than that. Uh, but we had to find a solution that they could afford the monthly payments for. I could afford the monthly payments for that when they did see doctors, they could afford the co pays and the deductibles. And, um, you know, when, when somebody makes $13, $14, $15 an hour, it's they don't usually have $500 of savings. So, what good at that time was a $1,000 deductible? Well, today they're $5,000 deductibles. What good are they? They're, they're useless for the majority of uh, American workers. Uh, so, I just created it on my own.
0: Can you explain the self-funded insurance model of redirect health?
4: Yeah, sure. But self-funded just means that um, it's it's a it's a platform that allows the flexibility that's needed in order to provide the right care that people need with the right logistics, the right timing, and at the right price. So I see self-funding as just a really good platform, but I've seen more self-funded plans that are that are just garbage. They just don't work because they're not designed right, they're not engineered right. So As much as being self-funded is important, it is only a platform that allows the flexibility and allows the purchaser and the user to get what they want out of the system. In a non-self-funded environment, it really is impossible today for a business to get what they need for their employees, in my opinion. It's just like um, um, Microsoft Word does not write a novel for you. But it's a lot easier to write a novel via Microsoft Word. Similarly, self-funded plan does not create a great health plan, but it becomes a lot easier to create a great health plan if you have a self-funded model. Plus, it puts you under federal law, which is the term is called ERISA. And there's a lot more flexibility there than there is under the uh, the state laws.
0: And your clients are small and medium-sized businesses? Every one of them. And yeah, they
4: need they need us the most.
0: And... um. Your customers are the employees of these businesses, and these employees are also patients at Redirect Health Centers.
4: Um, Well, you know, those are traditional words. And um, I guess the way we look at it is we create a collaboration between the business, the owner and the management, and the employees. And so if you want to, we'll refer to the businesses as clients and the employees and their families as members. So there's the purchaser and the user. There's the client and the member. That's how we refer to it. But those are just just words. Um, As far as the word patient, we really try to stay away from that word. Um, We we want all our members to stay members. When they become patients, that means something's gone wrong. We do not want our members to be patients. We want to help them not be patients. Think about as a, a family member, right? If I'm a dad and I'm a physician, I do not want my daughter, my son, my wife, my family members, to ever become patients. And as soon as they become a patient, I am trying doing everything I can to unpatient them. Now that is so different than how doctors make money and hospitals make money and drug companies make money and insurance companies make money. So it required a complete paradigm shift. Even the language is different and the philosophy is different. We do not want our members to be patients. But when they are, that's when we kick it into high gear and we help them become unpatient.
0: So would you say you focus on keeping your members well and preventing illnesses?
4: So as much as we can, but the biggest help that we give them is when they do have illnesses to make sure those illnesses never become acute, they stay chronic, they, um, they don't affect their work, don't affect their health, they get the right medications. If somebody's got asthma, we want to make sure that uh, they always have an asthma inhaler and they know how to use it and they can always afford it and they never run out and they never have to use an emergency room. I don't want them to be a patient of emergency room.
1: Episode three Listening, Diagnosing, and Telemedicine.
2: What I've learned over the years, there's very special words that our clients use, not just our clients that we use, words like maybe, I think, that sounds okay. They're non committal, nuanced words that we take as a definition of let's go forward.
0: In this two-part episode, we hear from commercial real estate industry veteran, Pete Bolton. The second part of the episode, we discuss the Pete Bolton company and his executive coaching services and QLE training, where he teaches executives and professionals the benefits of listening and asking clarifying questions. I ask him to discuss how QLE can benefit providers when asking questions to help better diagnose their patients. And as you know, in my world, my clients are in the commercial real estate. Um, as investors or their providers in the healthcare industry. And I remember when I first talked to you about this podcast, I said, you know, I I think that um, perhaps QLE could be applied in the healthcare industry because, you know, doctors are, you know, this was before we were all on the shutdown, but doctors, you know, they're, they're constantly being squeezed for time and, you know, they could use it to perhaps use that 15 minutes that they happen to be with a patient and, and use it to be more effective with the patient. And one of the things, you know, speaking to providers through this pandemic is they've constantly said to me, you know, what do you think about telemedicine? What do you think about telemedicine? And I said, well, you know, I think that there are certain applications for it, but obviously you can't perform surgery via telemedicine. But some have actually said, well, before, you know, insurance companies payers, they weren't paying for any telemedicine visits. So we were doing them, you know very infrequently, but what has happened is that telemedicine has now become a necessity because they you know couldn't see patients in as much volume and they had to be, I think, more severe. So do you see that QLE could be an important skill that a provider could use to make a most out of a telemedicine visit and then translate it into being more effective in an inpatient visit?
2: Absolutely. So what What separates a diagnosis from successful to possibly not successful diagnosis? And that is the doctor's ability to listen and take the time to listen to what a client is saying. And, you know, we've all got horror stories about somebody going in and talking about X. The doctor didn't particularly understand what they were talking about. And the first thing they say is, oh, I know what's wrong with you. And you start on that road, and that road turns out to be completely worthless or absolutely detrimental. And the reason is, is because we didn't listen to the client. Therefore, we didn't diagnose the problem properly. So getting back to telemedicine, you better have some very well-trained people on the other end of that phone to listen to the nuance words that we talked about earlier in this podcast is that when somebody said, yeah, it kind of hurts over here. Well, and people go, Oh really? What kind of hurt from zero to 10? No, wait a minute. What do you mean by kind of it either does or it doesn't. And then when does it and when doesn't it, you know, my back kills me when I lift that 60 pound block that I have to move around every day on the machine. But if they say it kind of hurts all day and you go, okay, that's great. Come on in. We'll get you a brace. No, wrong. You're doing something that's going to kill you. So the the diagnostic tool is answering questions with questions and defining exactly what the client is feeling. And, you know, sometimes, Tricia, they don't even know. They don't even they don't even know. Like, you know, you say it kind of hurts here. Does it hurt? Tell me about kind of. Does it hurt anywhere? Oh, yeah, it really affects, you know, my back, whatever it happens to be, or my shoulders. Well, why would that be? Well, after I lift it, I have to turn sideways. I mean, maybe they would have never gotten to that if they weren't listening to those specific words. So to diagnose over the phone when you can't see somebody, you better have phenomenal listening skills and questioning skills very very important and you know we're all interesting people truly and the the medical world is interested in their clients but what you want to be is you, you know you're you're interesting as a doctor a provider etc but you want to be interested in the correct diagnosis
0: well they're human they're human and uh, you know they're trying to diagnose other humans and if, if the other human is unclear and then, you know, the doctor isn't, you know, doesn't know the, the right questions to ask, you can see that there could be a miscommunication issue for sure.
2: Absolutely. And, and, you know, the other side of this, too, is the way you mentioned it earlier and how the reimbursement through the insurance companies is and, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and all those things. You're not getting reimbursed for your time specifically. So the more it's quantity, maybe, quantity over quality. Oh, I've heard this one before. Okay, let's get this done. Go see this person, you know, go to physical therapy and get that done for two months and then come back and see me. So it's just a lot deeper. And if you don't take the time to listen properly, then the uh, misdiagnosis is probably very... (laughs) Possible.
1: Episode 33 Healthcare's Cost versus Quality. Where Are We? Part 1 of 2 with guest Vinnie Sein, assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst.
3: You can't have it both ways. If you want to keep a capitalist, well functioning market, In healthcare, you have to have regulations to avoid it from like spiraling into either caring for like the richest people. So it's really, again, distilling back to your values, like what do you care about? Or the alternative is single pair, which I know for a fact isn't very popular with a lot of free market enthusiasts.
0: This week and next week's podcasts are a two part interview with Vinny Singh, an assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a PhD in health economics and policy. In today's episode, we discuss the current cost and quality of healthcare in the United States and where we stand with other comparable developed countries. We look at the current state of the ACA and how we might progress on the healthcare insurance front in the United States to reduce costs and improve quality of care. Next week, Vinny shares some challenges the US faces regarding the concept of universal healthcare and how information sharing, risk sharing, and simplifying the reimbursement system are ideas that can help to reduce healthcare costs and improve quality. Okay, Vinny, a warm welcome to the Providers Properties and Performance podcast.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here.
0: I'm excited to interview you. Like I've said, I've, I have to say the recent American Health Policy in 2020 webinar that you and your colleagues prepared has been one of the most engaging I've seen uh, addressing health policy. And for listeners, this webinar is now available on YouTube, and I'll have it in the show notes. And being that you are a health economist, I'm really looking forward to discussing with you You know what healthcare looks like today in the U.S., the current state of the Affordable Care Act what changes can improve cost and quality of care, and then options to consider surrounding health policy and ideas as we move forward. Absolutely, yeah. So before we start, I just want the listeners to understand the value of your insights based on your impressive academic pedigree. Your bachelor's uh, was in ecology and evolutionary biology from Rice University. You had a master's in international health, health systems from John Hopkins University, and your PhD in health economics and policy from Emory University. So basically, you know what you're talking about, and we should listen to some of the research you've completed and your ideas on health policy.
3: I, I'll have some addenda to it later on. <laughs> Starting with what healthcare looks
0: like in the US today, I wanted to share the statistics expressed on the webinar. And these are high level, obviously, there are some more detailed ones. But um, currently, the US healthcare industry is 17% of GDP and $3.3 trillion. Rounding this up, it's almost 20% of GDP. So one fifth of every dollar in the US is spent on healthcare. On average, $10,000 a year is spent per person on healthcare in the U.S. On the quality side, I was surprised to hear the statistic offered on the webinar regarding the metric that tracks deaths preventable by treatment, and the U.S. is ranked 34. Compared to similar developed countries that do a form of universal healthcare, they spend on average 9 to 11% of GDP and $1.3 trillion, and their cost per person is $3,500 to $6,000. So in these countries, healthcare is approximately... 30% 30% less, I think is what I heard, for services, and 50 to 60% less in the cost of prescription medication. So if the U.S. spends all of this on healthcare, why can we not expect that the quality is better than these countries?
3: Uh, that is a complicated question, and people have actually like spent their entire lives studying a very small part of it, and there's still research being developed on each of these parts. So, but I don't know if I can speak to why it doesn't translate to a better quality, but there is definitely a very different system in the United States, and that's because of this tripod uh, that drives healthcare. Uh, and that's the way healthcare is provided and the way it's uh, reimbursed. So um, I think I mentioned in the webinar, um, I had like an infographic which showed that the three drivers, uh, the central players in US healthcare are the patient the provider. Uh, The provider is usually the doctor or the hospital. And then there's the insurer. And the insurer is, um, there's two categories of insurers. The biggest insurer probably would be the government because they provide Medicare and Medicaid, but a very large insurer are like this hodgepodge of private insurance companies that also insure the process of healthcare provision. So uh, because of this sort of like, it's it's very fragmented because the people who provide the care are not responsible are not directly responsible for ensuring um, it, and and the insurers are on a separate leg. That creates all these inefficiencies that sort of lead to the prices of care skyrocketing in the U.S. compared to other countries. And and people often ask why why is the United States healthcare so expensive? And the reason anything is expensive is either you buy a lot of it, or the the price of each thing you buy is really high. And while there's some evidence that the United States uses a lot of care, there's a lot more evidence that the price of care is so much higher in the US. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I can talk about it in more detail. But that's sort of one of the big reasons it's so expensive, but it doesn't really translate to um, high quality. It's just It's just a de facto system that's put together, seemingly almost at random. Talking about that, you
0: know, additional statistics was that the number of people that are uninsured and underinsured and privately insured and mostly through employers. So it depends on employment numbers. But 40 percent of the U.S. population or 132 million is uninsured or underinsured. And, you know, for the underinsured, can we assume that they do not see care for preventative care and sometimes you know, even chronic care and basically have insurance to cover them for only, you know, traumatic health care
3: needs. Uh, absolutely. So underinsurance just means that you theoretically have insurance, but it might as well just be catastrophic insurance, which is what happens if you, I don't know, get into a car accident. But uh, sort of the day to day of what it takes to be a healthy person is largely denied um, to these individuals. So
0: <laughs> what it takes to be a healthy person. <laughs>
3: Yes, because it, it's definitely I mean, its so hard because especially in the United States, there's this thing, there's this concept where if you're in bad health, it's your fault. It's a moral failing. But all of us are going to at some point, you know, lose our health temporarily or for a long time. But we are all going to fall sick. And especially in the U.S., because of this conception about health. Some people find it easier to stay healthy and some people find it harder. That's sort of what I mean by what it takes to be a healthy person.
1: Episode 34, Healthcare's Cost Versus Quality. Where Are We? Part two of two with guest Vinnie Sein, assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst.
3: And I also want to point out more like sociological factors that prohibit us from being like other countries. Like people always point to Sweden and Norway and and other European countries or even Taiwan and, you know, all these countries that seem seem to have great single-payer systems. And it's because at a very core level in these countries, populations are much more homogenous than the U.S., you know, everyone's white or everyone's Asian or everyone's a certain way. And and there's all this like psychology and sociology research that show that I'm more willing to take a tax to pay more if I know I'm supporting someone who looks like me.
0: Welcome back to the second part of a two-part episode with Vinny Singh, an assistant professor in the Department of Resource Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst with a PhD in Health Economics and Policy. Today, Vinny discusses why the U.S. has challenges with getting its citizens to accept universal health care, and she shares ideas all aimed at simplifying our very complicated healthcare industry that can potentially reduce the costs and improve the quality of healthcare. In last week's episode, Vinny and I discussed statistics about the current state of the U.S. healthcare system compared to other comparable developed countries, the current state of the ACA, and what is working and what still needs to be improved. Do you see in your research, do you see some of the next steps in the ACA to make it more understandable for the layperson or do you see some of the confusion surrounding it or I understand the paperwork to enroll is incredibly difficult to understand to do it correctly?
3: So just healthcare by itself is so complicated that I just I'm not sure what an easy system would even look like. I think Taiwan has a really good one thing that could make it easy for everyone is, sort of allow information sharing. Right now, my insurer has part of the information. The provider has part of the information. I don't have my own medical information. If there was like a central hub where, you know, doctors could see my medical background, even if I haven't been to that state ever in my life or that hospital ever in my life, like, I mean, CVS does it. Like I can go into a different CVS and in a different state and they will... No, they have my information, you know. So I think something that would make understanding this a bit salient to us—that you know, our our healthcare is improving. Uh, the ACA could do something like that, but the actual rules of the ACA or any healthcare uh, bill—I don't know if if it's easy to understand. I'm not sure. I would trust it, just to, because then it could mean is that it's just blanket applying rules to people. And there's just too much variation in needs and, and how rich people are and uh, where they live and what they believe in and you know where they're getting their care from for it to be. So yes, maybe it would make you understand it better, but I think people would be unhappier because they would just be like, well, this doesn't apply to me. Lots to do. I I really don't want to say that the ACA is perfect. Far from it. But if it, it's not the destination, is how I think of it. It's like one imperfect step towards
0: a bigger goal.
3: Yeah, and I also want to point out more like sociological factors that that prohibit us from being like other countries. Like people always point to Sweden and Norway and and other European countries, or even Taiwan, and you know all these countries that seem seem to have great single payer systems. And it's because at a very core level in these countries, populations are much more homogenous than the U S you know, everyone's white or everyone's Asian or everyone's a certain way. And and there's all this like psychology and sociology research that shows that I'm more willing to take a tax to, to pay more. If I know I'm supporting someone who looks like me and in the U S it's just like, there's this sort of like non heterogeneity in how we look and we worship or our cultures, they're barriers to many other things, but also the concept of that I should pay for your healthcare when you might have a very different lifestyle than me or, and and when you look different, it sort of amplifies these differences. There's a lot. Yeah. There
0: is a lot. And I would say these differences, one, it's it's what the U.S. was built on to protect everyone's differences. And in that time, it was religion specifically, because everyone that came over here, well, everyone that came over here willingly was white, but, I, but that I think our heterogeneity is what makes us different and, and is one of our best qualities if we can.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when you ask me whether the ACA has been like the foundation of the ACA built on the value, that the health, that the poor people should be helped. And if it's at the expense of richer people, then it is fine because the rich people can handle it. But that value might not be shared by everyone. And I understand if it isn't, but all policies are made with a fundamental value at heart. Um, And there's going to be losers and there's going to be winners. And whoever decides the winners and losers decides so based on what they believe So in what the ACA believed it has accomplished to a large extent that the health and the insurance status of poor people and disadvantaged people has gotten better. And even like middling people, it's like the reverse trickle down. It's like the grassroots, if the bottom tier is healthy, then the higher tiers are less likely to bear that burden. So I have a positive view of the ACA. I can also see why other people might not.
0: I'm grateful for you tuning in to the Providers Properties and Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast with others. As a disclaimer, this podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and not intended for specific real estate investment advice.